Women's voices have their own quality that adds to our worship, and so it's good to hear all of us worshiping the Lord today. Um, as we began last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, this is one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. It really is, perhaps the hardest, if not one of the most hardest. The last two weeks, we have spent more time in the office as uh, staff collaborating on what does this text mean, how do we apply it, and how do we frame it, and studying, and there's just so much that is going into it. So we spent a lot of time on it, and um, again, it is uh, very, very difficult. Um, Sometimes we preachers, not sometimes, all the time when we preach, we want to stand up and we want to say, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. There are some times where we have to be humble and we have to say, I'm not sure what some things mean in the text. And uh, there's always the temptation to just kind of bluff our way through it and snow you a little bit. And we're not going to do that. Uh, There are things that we don't know, but there are things that we do know. And we will be resolute in those things that we do know. And the scriptures are complete and sufficient for us. And what this passage teaches for us is sufficient for today. Um, This is the liability of expository preaching. Expository preaching is we go through the Bible book by book, verse by verse. And when you come to a verse like this, a passage like this, you can't go around it. We We have to stay there and we have to teach it. Because there are some churches that would not touch this with the 10-foot pole. I'm honest about that. There are some churches that would never, ever address this this subject, let alone the passage. So we will continue on this morning in talking about this this difficult passage that results, that uh, has to do with uh, men and women being made in the image of God, the different roles that there are, and headship and submission. So, with no further ado, I I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to read the text. It is 1 Corinthians 11, and we're in verses 2 through 16. So I invite you to stand, as is our tradition of Valley Bible Church, to stand at the reading of God's Word and to say the Amen at the end, a tradition that we have found in the Scriptures but not commanded. We do this this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved." For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, the Lord neither is uh, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. We ask, Father, your grace to us this morning through the word of God. Lead us and guide us into how we might glorify you as you have made us in your image, distinct as men and women. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. In thinking through titles for this uh, message this morning, 
Um, I thought through many, and I had some people suggest some su- titles as well. And I want to just throw some of them out that were uh, suggested that we might adopt as a title. The first one is this, hats off, ladies. So kind of where we're going, take your hats off. Second one, uh, it's not as hairy as you think. Subject is not that hairy. Another one is uh, keep calm and worship on. Or in other words, keep calm, because we're only talking about hair, and there's more to it than this. Um, You know, we have men of renown at Valley Bible Church um, who are men of God who study the scriptures, and they walk with God, and they are well-known at Valley Bible Church. But we also have women of renown, too. We have women who are theologians, who are um, mothers and wives who love the Lord and really seek to to follow the Lord in what this passage teaches. And that's where I got the title this week from one of those women of renown. And this is the title that she suggested. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? When it comes down to it, as hard as all of this is, the question is, ladies and men, do you trust him that he made you the way you are, that you have a distinctive identity as a man, that you have a distinctive identity as a woman, that there are distinctive roles that are different and yet complementary, and will you live those out to the glory of God? That's really what it comes down to. I have a couple of quotes for you as we begin. The first is from a scholar by the name of Anthony uh, Thistleton. And he said this, he said, it is a travesty of, of this serious passage to reduce it to a matter of wearing hats. And that's what we all, what everybody wants to talk about. We have to wear head coverings. Do women have to wear hats and the doilies on their heads? Everybody wants to know that. But there's a travesty of what is really going on here because he goes on to say, or it's also a travesty to construe Paul's even-handed theology of mutuality, supposed uh, turning... Uh, mutuality into supposed misogyny or patriarchalism. So Paul is not saying that men are better than women. He's not a misogynist. He's not saying that only men can 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 rule in in, in every case. He is not putting down women in any in any way. Men and women are created equal in the eyes of God. He made them male and female, and together we, we, we reflect the image of God, but we have a different purpose. And so that's why I will quote another scholar this morning, uh, a man called um, Chris Martin. And this scholar said this last week. He said, men and women were made differently, and they were made different and they were made for a difference. That's basically all that we saw last week. I mean, it wasn't all that. There was more to it. But that is the point of what Paul is making in this passage. God has made us different. He has made us differently, and we have a different purpose. And we'll tease that out a little bit more, because this is what God is saying in this passage. I also have a picture of this scholar that I'd like to put up this morning. Oh, wait, that's not Chris Martin. That's... a. Uh, John Wesley, notice what what Wesley said. He said, for a man to have long hair carefully adjusted, coiffed, is such a mark of effeminacy as is a disgrace to him. But look at the length of his hair. (laughs) Which goes to show you this passage about traditions and what marks out masculinity and femininity in the church in Corinth is not always the same in every culture and every time. The principles of masculinity and femininity, of God's design of men and women, that does not change ever. But what he is talking about here, the Paul, that uh, Chris talked about last week, just because a man has long hair does not mean he is effeminate unless he is trying to be effeminate. The Spartans, you know, the Spartans were these warriors. They grew their hair long, and then when it was time for for war, they would 
put it up, I guess, in a man bun, you know. And then they would, they would go to war, but you would never mistake those men for being effeminate in any way, would you? So it's a matter of what it is you are communicating, and that was the problem in Corinth. The real message to the Corinthian church was about the creative order of God's design and the distinction of the sexes as a means of honoring and glorifying God under his authority. So all we're saying is this this morning. We who are under the authority of God, and all of us are, men, we are under the authority of Christ. Women, you are under the authority of your husband. All of us are under the authority of God. Christ is under the authority of his Father. We who are under the authority of God are to bring glory to him in our distinctive identities as male and female. We do it differently. We do it differently. Some of the women in Corinth were casting off their head coverings, and it was a statement. It was a statement of contentiousness and rebellion. Some of these liberated women had cast off their head coverings literally, and by so doing, they were literally casting off the male headship of their husbands and they were making a statement about it they were probably focused upon the gospel that the gospel makes us one galatians 3 talks about in christ there's neither male nor female jew or greek slave or free but it's a misreading of that text because that means everyone can come to christ equally regardless of the color of your skin regardless of where you come from, regardless of your station of life, regardless if you are male or female, young or old, whatever it may be. But the ladies were probably also saying, well, Paul, you told us all things are lawful, so we're casting off this lawfulness. But Paul would say, but not all things are profitable and not all things edify. So, here we go. We're going to do a, just a kind of a, uh, a brief run through, dragging through the sand a little bit. Uh, so the things that uh, Chris spoke to us so well last week. And so we want to see the divine pattern in present practice. Back in 11, 2 through 16, trying to figure out what is our present practice. We have the pattern. How do we practice it at Valley Bible Church? So... How do we practically glorify God by maintaining those divine gender roles that are given to us by God in creation? And the principles that we learned last week are these. Men and women are different. He made us different, male and female. He made us differently. He made us with a different function and purpose. Well stated by that scholar, Chris Martin. Yes, He made us different. I am not a man. Excuse me. I am a man. I'm not a woman. (laughs) You know where I'm going. (laughs) But I cannot say that I'm a woman. He made us distinct and different. My wife is a woman. I am a man. And never the twain shall meet. And viva la difference, right? That is a good thing. He made men, men and women, In his image, male and female, he created them. And together we reflect who God is and what God is. And we represent him in this culture and in this world. And he made us differently, which means he made the man first out of dust. And then he made the woman out of the man. So he made us differently. And also he made us with a different function and a purpose. Men have specific functions as men. Women have specific functions as, as women have specific functions as women. And in the church, those distinctions must be held to because they are not being held to in many, in many places. So Paul made five arguments. And what he was convincing them of was uh, head coverings. He was saying, I want to give you five reasons why women should wear head coverings in the church. He, he, he give the, gives these five uh, arguments, but what we see in the arguments is what they, they demonstrate something behind the tradition, and what they demonstrate is the, the principle of headship of men and women, and the principle of mutuality of God's design, and the principles of equality, and the principles of distinction that we are different. 
So Paul upholds the tradition of head coverings, but in so doing, he reveals these principles of divinely given gender roles that stand even today. The first argument is in uh, is of divine order in verses 3 through 6. As uh, we saw last week, Paul began, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Everyone submits, including Jesus. Jesus submits to his Father. John, in the book of John, remember, he, he said over and over again, I can only do what my Father wills me to do. I can only do what his initiative of, I, I must, and I can only follow my Father and glorify him. I can do nothing of myself. Everything that Christ did was because he was submitting to the will of the Father and the authority of the Father from eternity past to eternity future. Wearing a head covering while ministering for those in Corinth was a woman's way of demonstrating her devotion and her submission to God, and it was also a way of demonstrating her devotion and her submission and love of her husband. It was a grace, disgrace, rather, for men to be covered because that was the practice of women. And so if men went... And covered there is like, what are you doing what the women are doing? That's a disgrace. You are a man. You need to do what men do. And when women were to take, were taking off their head coverings, what are you doing? You're acting like a man. You are to do what women are to do. And you're blurring the distinctions. The second argu- argument was the creation of male and female. In Genesis 1, male and female, he created them in his image. And it is only together that they, we reflect the image of God. And a man is not to have his head covered, but the woman is to have her head covered, it says, because she is the glory of man. That doesn't mean she has some fading or diminished glory. doesn't mean that women are thought of as one step less than men. In fact, as, we, as Chris talked last week about uh, uh, Dirt Boy and Glory Girl, man was made of dust, and the woman was made from the man. She was made of better stuff. She was made of something better than him. She is the glory of man because she completed creation. Without creation, it, without the creation of the woman, the creation itself was not yet complete. Remember, in the creation account, God created this and that and all the, and all the various days. And, and he said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then he created the man and he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He's not complete. He's only half of himself of what he should be or could be. So what did he do? He said, I... He created the animals, and he said, Adam, I want you to name those animals, which he did. And after naming them, said Adam, did not find anyone suitable for him. It was an object lesson. All these animals paired up, and male and female, but there wasn't anybody for him. And so God created Eve out of the man, and she completed him. That is the glory of the man, to the woman to the man. In fact, he praised her, didn't he? He said, he praised her. He gave her glory. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. That was a praise that was giving her glory for the way that she was made and the purpose for which she was made. The order of creation, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And that was part of this divine difference between men and women and the authority that men have. Man's authority, however, is delegated from God himself. We don't have authority just because we're guys. It's given to us. It's derived from God himself. It does not mean that men are in any way superior to women. That's pretty easily to demonstrate, isn't it? Sometimes women are superior to us in many ways. And therefore, men should never, ever abuse the authority that God has given to them in the home. The woman's role in creation, indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Again, this is not an inferior role. The man was incomplete. 
And as I've often said, um, God created the heavens and the earth, and the last thing that he created was mankind. And mankind was the crowning glory of his creation. And you know what the jewel in that crown was? The woman. She was the capstone of his creation, the crowning glory, because she brought glory to the man. You might say, ladies, God saved the best for last, right? She was made of better stuff than Adam, as it were. But we also see that place of mutuality and interdependence. As Paul said, you need to understand this. Yes, men have authority in the home. And yes, there is authority in the church. But he says, but a woman is not independent of man. And the man is not independent of the woman. Whereas the woman originates from the man. So also the man has his birth to the woman. And all things originate from God. The circle. Yes, Adam was the first man and then the woman. But since then, every one of us have a mother. Every one of us have a father. And we both we have both mother and father. Everyone does. Every single person. Third argument was about the angels. He said a woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. And it's a hard one to understand. But, uh, but just think of it this way. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite passages in the scripture, the throne room of God, and you have these angels that are flying through the air with wings, six wings. With two they cover their feet, with two they fly, and with two they cover their faces. Why? Because they're in the presence of the holy God. The glory of God is manifest, and they're not worthy to look at him. They're not worthy. And so when angels see women saying, I am worthy to be whatever I want to be, and rebelling against their God-given role, the angels don't understand this. And so for the sake of the angels, nature is the fourth argument that he gives for head coverings. And he says, judge for yourselves. Isn't it, isn't it uh, true that you see that a, uh, men have longer hair and it's a glory, uh, uh, women have longer hair, excuse me, and it's a glory for women to lo- have long hair, but a disgrace for men. As we saw last week, it's not always the case. It's a matter of femininity or masculinity, and men with long hair can be masculine. And women with short hair can be very feminine. But he's talking about obvious differences in the creative order between the sexes. Men and women are different. We are different physically. We are different anatomically. We are different physiologically. And it is a, apart from hair, it is obvious. I look out here and I can tell who is a man and who is a woman because that's what God has done. And we celebrate that. We know that. Men are generally taller, right, than women? And men are generally stronger. Not in every case, but in most cases. That doesn't mean short men are inferior or tall women are inferior. It just means that generally that's the case. Women... Your husband is more likely to become bald. (laughs) And men, your wife is more likely to outlive you by quite a bit. It's just the way it is. Men are different. Women are different. And we live in a world that is trying to blur those distinctions. Men cannot nurse children. Men cannot have babies. A father cannot be a mother. A wife cannot be a husband. These are God-ordained, distinctive roles of men and women, of masculinity and femininity, and we are to celebrate those. The fifth one that he gives as an argument is the universal church practice. It was just what the churches did at the time. That's what they did. Everybody, the women wore head coverings. We don't have that, though. We don't have that. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, he said, about this, there's no other practice in all the churches. Everywhere you go, this is, it's the tradition that women wear coverings on their head. So where do we land, having made that argument for head coverings? We, we've been seeing the principle behind it. Where do we land? We land here. 
It is to God's glory that men and women display the distinctiveness of their gender. It is a glory to God that we do that. It is dishonoring to him when we blur the distinctions. It is dishonoring when a man wants to look like a woman or a woman wants to look like a man or just by, by virtue of some happenstance, they try and be what they are not. So we see this, gender differences should never be a distraction to our worship. And that's what was happening in Corinth. The women were taking off their head coverings, which was a tradition, but in so doing, they were a distraction to the worship of God. And we should not, we should not entertain that. By the way, I hate to use the word gender because the word gender has only come into vogue since about the 1980s. It's been around for a long time. But before that, uh, when you talked about men and women, it was always the sexes, the male sex and the female sex. Gender has uh, been as a, as a Trojan horse that has come into our lexicon so that it can mean whatever you want it to mean. By the way, next week we're going to talk about transgenderism and that, what a big part that plays in our culture today. So we do see a, a, a teaching that is behind the tradition we don't see a timeless tradition that we are to institute today and say, women, you need to have your heads covered, heads covered. But the biblical principles of masculinity and femininity never change because they are found in creation. These are by God's de- design. So we will not institute a tradition here at Valley Bible Church that ladies should wear head coverings. It's hard to know how we apply the symbol of authority today, but since we don't know for sure, it would be very risky for us to say, well, we're going to err on the side of caution. And since they had head coverings in in Corinth, we're going to tell our women, well, we're not really sure what it means, but just to be safe, we think you should. I don't think we can land there because we don't know what what it was what the symbol of authority was but we do know the principles behind it ladies if you adopt a different view if by conviction and by conscience maybe your tradition maybe the way you were raised you believe that when you come to church on sunday mornings you should have something on your head fine we are not going to in any way um, say that you're doing the wrong thing we would celebrate your expression of your femininity if that's what you so choose. But we're not going to mandate that of Valley Bible Church. Next, gender differences should never be a distraction to our worship, as we've said, because there must be a physical distinction between men and women. Like I said, I look out and I can see the difference, especially when we gather to worship, especially. And we, though we're not going to institute any new traditions, is it possible that we are sometimes too casual? Is it possible that sometimes we are too casual that we forget about the distinctions that should be evident when we come together to worship? Could it become a distraction that some men look like women and women look like men? Going to worship is not the same as going shopping? Going to worship is not the same as going to the gym. If you were invited to a a state dinner in Washington, D.C., and you showed up with a T-shirt and a ball cap on, first of all, you wouldn't get in the door. But if you did, everyone would be looking at you because you would be making a statement, wouldn't you? You'd be saying, hey, look at me. I I don't have to wear what you want me to wear, and we're not telling you what to wear. But sometimes our dress can be a statement. I dress differently on Sunday mornings. And, it, and you don't have to do what I do. But I, but I do it because I, I respect my position as a preacher. And I respect you. And I want to honor you by standing here and, and not you know, wearing a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. I want to take what I do very seriously for your benefit and for the glory of God. So men, in our dress, 
in our demeanor, in your leadership, even on Sunday mornings when you come to the front door with your wife and kids in tow, are you demonstrating that you are the leader, that God has placed you as head of that home? Are you singing with gusto? Come and sit up front. I, I, I dare you, men, to lead your family by example, to sit up front and sing with gusto, to be a man like Christ is a man. I'm not berating you. I'm just saying our goal should be to be like Jesus Christ in every way. And he was not effeminate. And he was not weak. He was strong. He is a man's man. He is the ultimate man. And men, on Sunday mornings, in your demeanor, it should be recognizable some way that Paul has said that you are a man and that you are masculine. Women, in your dress, in your demeanor, does it declare your femininity, your joy and gladness of following the loving leadership of your husband? Do people look at you and say, you're well adorned, maybe not calling to yourself, attention to yourself, or sexualizing yourself, but are you making a statement that others would look at you, or are you calmly and lovingly and with a hidden person of the heart, that beauty that is within you, does, is that played out in your demeanor and even how you dress on Sunday mornings? Because he is talking about order in the church. But again, in neither case, men or women, are we to call attention to ourselves. Hey, look what I'm wearing. Look at me today. We are to call attention to him, right? In everything we do on Sunday mornings. Next, gender differences should never be blurred. And they were being blurred in Corinth. When the women took their, their uh, hats off, they were saying, I'm just like you guys. And when the men were covering their heads, like we said before, it's like, what are you doing? That's what the women do. That was a tradition there, but there should not be a blurring of the distinctions between men and women at Valley Bible Church. Again, while wearing a head covering early in the church was that acknowledgement of authority Today, we don't have any real item of clothing that when we look at someone and say, well, I can tell that that woman is under the authority of her husband. But we do want to demonstrate femininity and femaleness and masculinity and maleness in what we do. The tradition today is not to wear a head covering. I don't see anybody with a hat on this morning. There was a time in the United States where it was traditional. But it is not a, a tradition today. Paul said to, to them, he said, regarding this tradition of, of head coverings, we have no other practice in all the churches. To which we say, we have no such practice in all the churches. At least in, in America. There are some churches that do practice that, but for the most part, that is not our tradition. So again, do we err on the side of caution and say, ladies, you should wear head coverings? I don't think so. I think we need to be careful. It's not a tradition now. So if we started handing out doilies with the communion and veils and along with uh, your bulletins, we're tiptoeing into legalism. And we're not going to mandate that. That's why I'm giving you principles. Men be men, women be women, and you know what it means. We know what it means by nature. But there is no, thus saith the Lord in this passage. There are no commands or imperatives. There are a couple of oughts. Men ought to do this, women ought to do that. But the principles do not change. When we minister in the church, we need to hold to proper distinctions between male and female. We, have, we are a church that is devoted, devoted to male leadership. We have men elders. We have men deacons. We have men adult Sunday school teachers, etc. But we have women who do ministry all over the place. I am no good without my wife. I would be a failure in ministry without Tara. 
two are better than one in a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And I am smart enough to know because my wife's chiding me over the years that I need the input of women at Valley Bible Church and and we need the ministry of women at Valley Bible Church. And I think we do a pretty good job of valuing that input. On on Tuesday mornings, we have a, a sermon prep time and where we go through the passage and seated around the table are men and women. Because I want to hear what the women have to say about this passage or other passages. Yes, I'll ask my wife, but I want the perspective of a, of a single mom or someone who's raising grandkids, or someone who um, is in the throes of childbearing, because we value that point of view, because God has made them to compliment us. And we value women more than you would ever even understand here at Valley Bible Church. So we really need to be careful, though, about instituting traditions. It'd be fascinating to know, and I want to study some more about how church traditions uh, develop, but they usually don't develop because you have a couple of guys say, we want to start a new tradition. That's really not usually how they start. So we want to be very careful about that. Next, glorify God as a man and glorify God as a woman. Men, you are a man. Women, you are a woman. And there are specific ways that you bring glory to God, women, that I cannot do. I'm not as good as you at some things. I don't have the same abilities, the same thinking, the same point of view. And that is in reverse as well. Men can do things that women cannot Women can do things that men cannot, but glorify God as you are. We must remember the, the physicality of worship. And so, you know, this whole idea of dress, wearing jeans and a t-shirt does not mean you're not, you don't look like a woman. Just don't try to look like a man. Or men just don't try to look like a woman. Glorify God in the distinctive nature that God has made you as a man or a woman. The physicality of worship. We're here, we're sitting down, we stand up, we sing. Some raise their hands, we say the amen. Chapter 3, we are a temple. Paul said the Holy Spirit is here as a temple. Chapter 6, you individually are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And remember what he said, Glorify God in your body. In your male body as a man, glorify God. In your female body, glorify God as a female. That is recognizable and distinct from one another. Just a few sentences ago from chapter 11, and it's been a couple weeks for us, but sentence-wise, Paul said this, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There are specific ways that men depict the masculine maleness in which they are created, and there are specific ways that women depict the femininity, the femaleness in which she is created. So, that is my encouragement to you. Be the man, men. Women, demonstrate that quiet and beauty that God has given to you on the inside, but let it come on the outside as well. Second of all, this morning, since we're talking about this idea of men and women being different, there is an idea uh, that is called complementarianism. And we are a church that believes in complementarianism. We are devoted to male leadership, as I said. And I want us to, to look at the timeless truths of God's creation in which we are going to see gender equality does not mean gender sameness. Gender equality, and we are equal in the sexes, but it does not mean gender sameness. Complementarianism is this, that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities. Compliment doesn't mean like, wow, I like your new head covering, it's really cute. That's not that kind of a compliment. But it is... Uh, the two people, the men and women, have complementary roles. 
Back in the 1980s, the uh, Conference for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood came to the fore, was created by a bunch of scholars and pastors, both men and women, because of the rise of so-called biblical feminism in the church. And so the Denver Statement, which we're going to go through in just a moment, just uh, quickly, um, talks about complementarianism. But one of the one of the, the signers and developers was a, a scholar, a female scholar by the name of Mary Cushion. And just a couple of years ago, she wrote an article about complementarianism. So I want to give you her definition because it comes from a woman. And this is what she says. She says, essentially, complementarianism, complementarian, is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line, meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot. And that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. So together... You see, we complement one another to give a full-orbed picture of the glory of God, the image of God. Together we do that. And when we slight one or the other, we're, we're missing it. So I want to read the Denver Statement. You can, you can find it online at uh, cbmw.org. But let me just go through it just kind of quickly because uh, I think it's, it's easy to, to walk through a little bit of teaching at this moment, but just read it because I think it will help you to understand what we're talking about. Number one, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. He created them male and female in his image, distinct. Two, distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart that masculinity and femininity should be found in, in, in everyone. By the way, the Danvers statement, if you look online, myriad of churches and Bible colleges and seminaries post this as this is what we believe about men and women and this is what we believe as well. Number three, Adam's headship in marriage was established by God before the fall and not a result of it. Feminists say this whole thing of men being, uh, women submitting to, to men is a result of sin in the world. But no, the headship of Adam over Eve was declared and put into place before they fell into sin. Four, the fall introduced distortions into the relationships between man and woman. God had a good thing going. Adam and Eve had a good thing going. But sin distorted those roles and those relationships. 4.1, for instance, in the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination. At one end, men are going to rule. Or passivity, let the women lead the children and go to church. But it also... That distortion distorts the wife's intelligent, willing submission, and it tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. Either the, yes, dear, I'll do whatever you want, or I'm going to rule over the man, which is part of the fall, by the way. When women chafe at submission, it's because in, in the curse in Genesis 3, uh, the curse that God placed upon the woman was, your desire will be over your man, and thus began the battle of the sexes. That's why we have it. 4.2, in the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power. You ever see that? Oh, yes. Or an abdication of spiritual responsibility. One or the other, authoritarianism or just, you, you do it, ladies. But it also inclines women to resist limitations on their roles, thinking that they can't they're of no value and can't, uh, uh, cannot do anything for God, or they neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries, and we don't want that. We want our women to, to, 
to live out the spiritual giftedness that God has given to them to the glory of God as we work together side by side. Five, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament manifests the equal, equally high value and dignity which God attached to the roles of both men and women. God attached them. Both Old Testament and New Testament also affirm the principle of head, male headship in the family and in the covenant community. We have the patriarchs, we have the leaders of Moses, we have in the New Testament, God, uh, Jesus chose men as apostles. Old Testament and New Testament, male leadership is God's, God's way of doing things. But women have an important role as women. Well, Jesus was attended to by women. He had women who supported him financially. The women were the first ones to d- discover that he was... Um, that he had been risen from the dead, and over and over and over and over again, we see the high value of women. Six, redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. Number one, 6.1, and family husbands should forsake harsh, selfish leadership. Man, that's not the way to lead in the home. That is due to sin. But we are to grow in love and care for our wives. We are to lead and by example. We are to make sure that they are growing spiritually. We are to serve them. We are to sacrifice for them. We are to be like Christ to them. That is what true masculinity is. 6.2, in the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Together we are joint heirs as husband and wife and men and women. We share equally in all the promises of the eschaton. Men don't get some special perks when Christ comes back. Number seven, in all of life, Christ is supreme, the supreme authority and guide for men and women. So the no earthly submission Domestic, religious, or civil ever implies a mandate to follow human authority. We follow Christ. Number eight, in both men and women, a heartfelt sense of call to ministry should never be used to set aside biblical criteria for particular ministries. In other words, uh, women, and it happens sometimes, will say, I just feel called to be an elder. I just feel called to preach. I want to be a pastor. But if that's at odds with what the scriptures say, then that's, that's a subjective leading that you feel like you're following. We cannot set aside the Word of God. Number nine basically says this, the world is dying and needs men and women to marshal all the forces necessary to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. And number ten, we are convinced that a denial or neglect of these principles will lead to increasingly destructive consequences in our families, our churches, in the culture at large. Are we there yet? We're there. So, be who and what you are to the glory of God. What he has made you, man. What he has made you, woman what you are in life. If you are a ditch digger or a professor or a bank teller or a stay-at-home mom, embrace your masculinity, men. Embrace your femininity, women. But embrace who you are, and there should be something evident in our lives as to who we are and what we are. I don't know what to make of this, but a couple of weeks ago I went to the hospital to visit someone and post pandemic you have to check in and, and get a name tag and there were lots of people checking in and uh, gave him the, the guy my name and he said are you a pastor i said well, what makes you think that i wasn't wearing a clerical collar and i will wear that i will own that for some reason he sensed that i was a pastor that's okay I think we should be what we are, and it should be recognizable. Men are men, and women are women, and whatever it is you do, do all to the glory of God, and be who you are, because he's made you a man. He's made you a woman. He's made you to be feminine. He's made you to be masculine, and it is a wonderful thing. And finally, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Men, do you trust him? 
that you can lead your family as a man who is a man's man. I know some men are less masculine than others, but you can be like Christ. Women, do you, do you trust him to submit to your husband and his loving care and his loving leadership? Do you trust God enough for your husband to make mistakes? Because he will. In a biblical worldview, we believe that God exists. We believe that he's absolute and we believe that he's Lord of all. And therefore, whatever he wills, he's willed you to be something. Whatever he has decreed, he has decreed the difference between the sexes. It is for his glory and it is for our good. Now next week, we're going to look at the dystopian distortion of God's creation, how this passage relates to the current issue of transgenderism, and how this relates to the upcoming election, which is coming in just a couple of weeks. And we want to talk about that before that first Tuesday in November. But this relates to transgenderism as well. Our conclusion is this, as we've been saying. It is to God's glory that men and women display the distinctiveness of their gender to his glory. Gender differences should never be a distraction. Gender equality does not mean sameness. And gender equality does not mean interchangeability, which we'll look at next week. But this is what draws us together. This is what makes us one. The cross of Christ, I invite you to the table because it is in our faith in Christ that we find what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman in Christ. We find in the gospel of Christ the fulfillment of all for which we were created, his glory. We find in the, in the bread and the cup the man who came and lived for us. The first Adam failed, and so did his wife. The last Adam triumphed, and so does his bride, us. And so we partake of the table together. Father, we are grateful for changing us through the word of God, through the cross of Christ. And we gladly accept our position, our distinctiveness, our what in life, what you have made us to be, as men and women who bring glory to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And God's people said, amen.